0: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 342nd episode, we have a bunch of news including the long-awaited description of Cooper, the massive titanosaur from Australia. Oh yeah, we've been waiting for years. It's been breaking the internet as much as any dinosaur does, I guess. (laughs) It's all over the place.
1: It's also a very large dinosaur.
0: Yeah. yeah. So it could, it could break, it could definitely break a laptop or something if it stood on it. That's for sure. (laughs) So yeah, we're going to talk a lot about that and other news. We also have an interview with Dean Lomax, where we talk about all sorts of different fossils, including some really funny topical stuff like fossilized flatulence. It's got a nice alliteration to it. It's really hard to say. That took me a couple of tries. And we have Dinosaur of the Day, Sauraniops, or Sauraniops, depending on where you put the emphasis.
1: Before we get into all that, though, it's June 16th, or at least it will be when this episode drops, and that means we're ready to announce our winner for our t-shirt design competition. Well, first, just want to say again, thank you so much to everybody who participated in designing and in voting for the designs. It was a really great experience, and it was so cool to see all of the designs.
0: Oh, yeah. We were amazed at how many entrants we got. We were hoping to get, like, three or four, and that's sort of where we were in the beginning, and then we got this huge flood of them.
1: I know. So, so much talent. I mean, we knew we knew you were all talented, but to be able to see it.
0: Yeah. And it was very flattering how many people put, like, I Know Dino on it or, like, tried to include elements of our show and stuff. It was, it was very cool.
1: Yeah. We got 640 votes for it, which was amazing as well to see. And, I mean, we loved all of the designs, but we did promise there would be a winner.
0: But we we did stretch out the winners because if any keen-eyed observers noticed, there was an asterisk saying, we might expand the number of winners if we like lots of them. And since we had people vote for their five favorite, we ended up deciding, okay, well, let's just do five winners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there are now five designs in our store from the entrance.
1: Yes. But the grand prize winner is the Soro Podcast t-shirt, which was designed by Venezoic. And it's really cool. It's it's a sauropod standing on top of the world,
0: sort of giraffe titan brachiosaurus upright, and then its neck is like the antenna, and then the there are like radio signals coming out of its head. Yep, <laughs> it's really cool.
1: Well, it's definitely a brachiosaurus. that is in the
0: description. Okay, good.
1: <laughs> really close in second place is the Ino Dino T-shirt by Spectrum Dragon, and that's the one of the T Rex and this red-tailed hawk skeleton.
0: Yeah, it looks like the T-Rex is playing with the red-tailed hawk. I actually thought it was a chicken at first because that shows how much I know about what bird skeletons look like. <laughs> but it looks like it's playing with it like a cat on its back, like curled up and like tossing at it. I don't know if that's the intention. That's just what it looks like to me.
1: I should mention all of these designs were really close in terms of the number of votes that they got. So the other designs that are going to be featured in our store are the cute dinosaur t-shirt by Cassie Mode Designs. And that one, that one reminds me a lot of Gertie.
0: Oh, yeah. It's like a cute sauropod, mm-hmm. sort of sketch style. With hearts. Although Gertie was a little more aggressive than this one looked like it would be.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I said It just reminded me. Yeah. <laughs> then there's 80s Dino Rock t-shirt by King Mantis, which I really love the colors.
0: Yeah, it's, it's very much like an 80s rock t-shirt because it's like all black and then it's got like the bright yellow and red. And purple. Yeah, logo in the middle is really enjoyable. With a couple dinosaur skulls on it.
1: And then there's the Ino Dino podcast t shirt by That Nerdy Girl, which (laughs) this one looked like some good personal touches. We've got the sauropod and the ankylosaur Mm -hmm. in front of Ino Dino. And, you know, those are our two favorites.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they're really well drawn too. I like that one.
1: So, again, thank you so much to everyone who participated. This was so cool to see. And we loved all the designs, so we actually ended up ordering items from each of them already. (laughs) Yeah. And we'll be be either wearing them or displaying them around the house.
0: Not just each of the five winners. We bought each of every single (laughs) entrant because we were, yeah, we just wanted to support everybody and they're all so cool. Yeah. And if you want to see the winning designs or order them, emphasis on the order them, because it's good to support the designers. And we also get a little benefit too if you buy it from our store. And you can get that by going to bit.ly slash inodino store. Again, bit.ly slash inodino store. You can show off your inodino pride and support our listeners who created these really cool designs. And speaking of people supporting inodino, we have a new patron this week, and that's Arya and Tristanosaurus. So thank you very much for joining. Good dinosaur name. Mm-hmm. And rounding out our shout outs, we've got. Rhinosaurus, Lucas and Eli, Richard, Kaelin, Taya, Stego, Sophie, Brendan Cavanaugh, Pippa Ceratops, and Ben at Jurassic Site B.
1: Yes, thank you so much. We really love our dinosaur community, and we're so glad that you're a part of it. And if you want to join and get in on conversations with people about all kinds of dinosaur things in our Discord, as well as some other benefits, then go to our page at patreon.com slash
0: So now jumping into the news, we're going to kick it off with our new giant sauropod from Australia. This one was written by Scott Hucknull, which we've known about, that he was working on it for a while.
1: Mm-hmm. We met him at SVP in 2019.
0: Yep. And we were like, when, is, when are we going to hear about Cooper? <laughs> and he and said he's, like, he's working soon. on it. Yeah. <laughs> which I, it's been soon in paleontological terms, at mm-hmm. least. And there's also a, a slew of co authors, as usual. And this was published in Pure J, which means it's open access. And that also means that you can read all 115 pages, not including references of this <laughs> <laughs> it's very long paper, it super thorough. It, more than anything, it was almost like a complete compendium of recent paleontology in australia and some really good graphics of like australia as a whole country and the different geological formations in it and like how deep soil is and all sorts of really in-depth geological details
1: did you already say it was 115 pages
0: yes yeah yeah it's very long i mean the whole paper is 130 but 15 are references and you don't really read that part so 115 of reading material eight and a half by 11 size not like Book hundred fifteen single spaced. Or? Yeah, single space. There are some pictures, <laughs> but there are also some very difficult words. So, although it was very well written, there weren't a lot of like made up words because sometimes people write a paper and they just come up with a bunch of new words. This was easy to read as far as a hundred fifteen page paper goes. So, I really appreciated that, and the massive size of the paper I think is pretty. Reasonable considering that there was also a massive dinosaur. It is now the largest dinosaur ever found in Australia. Wow. Yeah. Although I
1: wonder if they'll find bigger ones after this because they're already finding more fossils and specimens.
0: They certainly could. We spoke with Joe Pegler and Corey Richards almost two years ago about this dinosaur back in episode 263, and they also both got shout outs in the acknowledgements section of this paper. Nice, But yeah, Corey, we he was the one that gave us our tour of the Aeromanga Natural History Museum, and he showed us some of the bones, and some of them were like maybe bigger than Cooper. So yeah, it's possible that Cooper won't be the largest dinosaur in Australia for long. and. Really, Cooper's getting towards the upper limit of sauropods in general, so it's possible that Australia could have the largest dinosaur, period, (laughs) if they get much bigger than Cooper, but we'll have to wait and see what comes out. So yeah, we're very happy that now Cooper, its nickname, has been for the last several years. Its full official name is Australotitan cooperensis, so they managed to keep Cooper in there. I really appreciate that. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. And then Australotitan is Australian Titan, just like Patagotitan is Patagonia Titan, all that kind of stuff. And then they said they named it Cooperensis because it's, quote, from the Cooper Aramanga Basin, Cooper Creek System, and Cooper Country. <laughs>
1: That's a lot of Cooper.
0: <laughs> it is a lot of Cooper. <laughs> so, yeah, well, well named, I think. And it is also the first dinosaur named from the Aramanga Basin. Far from the last. Yeah, we're we're expecting many more for sure. I guess they could have ma- named it Aeromanga Titan if they wanted to get like some extra attention.
1: Maybe the next one.
0: Yeah, that does seem to be the way it goes. You start with like a broader category when you find something in a place and then it gets more and more specific. Like in China, a lot of the early dinosaurs were like Sino something for like Chinese mm-hmm. and then they went down to provinces and now it's like a small town <laughs> because that <laughs> province already has the, the dinosaur named after it. I should point out though, Cooper was found almost a hundred kilometers west of Aromanga, which might be why it wasn't Aromanga Titan, because it wasn't really in Aromanga.
1: Right. It was more in Cooper.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and there's there's also already a Wintana Titan, and that it was found in the Winton Formation, so <laughs> that was already occupied. So they actually went bigger in this way <laughs> than the previous find. In the map, too, where it shows That Cooper was 100 kilometers west of Aramanga. They also have another map that shows Australia, and it looks just like Mars. And to me, it looks like Mars because it's all like red color-coded, and the red gets darker the deeper the regolith is. And I've only heard regolith used in relation to Mars because Mars (laughs) is covered in regolith. It's the red planet. Yes, (laughs) But regolith actually just means broken up rock. So there's lots of regolith on Earth and other planets too. It's not just a Mars or the moon thing. It's anywhere that has regolith on it. And regolith translates as a, quote, rock blanket. If you go directly from Latin to English, since it covers the bedrock like a blanket. So that's why it's called regolith. Just a little side fun fact. But interestingly, in the Winton Formation, the expansion and contraction of the ground quote, offers a likely mechanism that evidently brings hard material from within the underlying Winton formation up to the soil surface, end quote.
1: Hard material like
0: fossils? Exactly. Nice. Yeah, Corey explained this to us when we did our tour there too, which is basically like the freeze-thaw cycle that like tears apart roads in colder places. It also brings bones up to the surface, but I thought it was funny that they had like a double caveat there that it was like a likely mechanism which evidently (laughs) does this because it's such a weird mechanism Mm -hmm. like we don't talk about fossils other places just like popping up out of the dirt
1: no usually they're really stuck in there
0: yeah and you just see a little bit exposed then you have to like dig down and get them out but in aromanga they literally like pop up out of the ground in some cases though they pop up out of the ground and then they excavate because like one popped out Mm -hmm. and then you can dig down and find the other ones so that's what they ended up doing with Cooper. They didn't all pop up out of the ground. They actually did do some digging Just there.
1: enough to let you know something interesting was there.
0: Yeah, exactly. I love that, though. Like, imagine if that happened everywhere. Like, one bone <laughs> just popped up, and it was like, "There's there's bones here, just so you know.
1: That would be amazing.
0: Yeah. And it also kind of explains how like all these farmers and ranchers end up discovering the bones. And like with Cooper, it was discovered by someone on their own land. And then they were like, well, we should do something about this. And ended up basically starting the Aramanga Natural History Museum mm-hmm. because they were like, there are dinosaur bones popping up out of our land. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. I love that story so much. So in the end, they did find quite a few of Cooper's bones. The specimen number is EMF-102, in case you're wondering. After the Aeromanga Museum, that's what the EM is for. They found a complete right humerus, which is really helpful for size estimates because we have those for some of the other Australian titanosaurs. They got a right ulna, right and left pubes, right and left ischia, a partial left scapula, a partial left humerus, and both partial femora. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty decent. Mm-hmm. They also referred a few bones from other localities to Australotitan.
1: Oh yeah, what'd they refer?
0: They got a complete femur from one spot, a partial humerus from another spot, and then a third spot that had like a whole collection. They got a fragmentary femur, an ulna, some vertebral centrum fragments, and some rib fragments.
1: Nice. So you can paint a pretty good picture of then of this sauropod.
0: Yeah. It is a little bit confusing to me, though, because I keep wanting to refer to it as Cooper, but really Cooper is just the one that's the holotype. Right. And the rest of them are just Australotitan. I keep wanting to say Australotitan, like Australia, but I think it should be Australotitan, right?
1: I think it's like Australotitan, like Australovenator.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. So I've been trying to do that, but the whole time I was reading it, I was saying it in my head a different Mm, way. (laughs) It's hard hard for me to get right.
1: Yeah, but yeah, so Cooper is that one individual has the nickname of Cooper, but then other specimens that are found to be the same as Cooper, that are found to be the same species as Cooper, they're together, they're known as Australotitan.
0: yeah. And technically Cooper is the holotype of Australotitan. So if any, if there are differences in the future, those just will stop being Australotitan. In addition to dinosaur fossils, they also found some really pretty fossilized ferns, as well as some wood that was fossilized and some sauropod tracks.
1: Do they think they're from Cooper?
0: I don't know. Probably too hard to tell. Yeah, and it's, I couldn't tell exactly how close it was. It wasn't like Cooper was walking and then like died at the end of the trackway. Mm-hmm. It's a little different than that. I think we actually talk about that with Dean Lomax a little bit.
1: Yeah, <laughs> not, not sauropods, but other animals.
0: Yeah, yeah, rarely, rarely happens, but it could be. And I think the fossilized tracks, they described as partial tracks. So I'm not sure how much detail they can get from them anyway, but there is like a mush part. Like it was a heavy enough animal. It was like mushing out a bunch of muck over to the side when it stepped. So yeah, sauropod is a good guess at a, at a minimum. They estimate that Cooper is around 93 to 96 million years old, which puts it at the beginning of the late Cretaceous.
1: That's when the big dinosaurs were coming out.
0: Yeah, the titanosaurs for sure. And there were some in the early Cretaceous too, but yeah, the late Cretaceous really got going. The authors talk quite a bit about how they weren't going to give a body size estimate and how even giving any sort of body size estimate in relation to like femur or humorous circumference is fraught Mm -hmm. and going to give bad results so people shouldn't do it but it is clearly the largest Australian sauropod and they are comfortable with saying that. Maybe
1: in later papers, if more fossils are found, they'll come up with something.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially when you're talking about length, Mm -hmm. like we only have a few partial centrum, like you're not gonna be able to estimate its length. You need so many more vertebrae to figure that kind of thing out. But when comparing the humerus, it's by far the biggest of any Australian sauropod. Australotitan is one and a half meters or four foot, 11 inches long. The humerus. Yeah, the humerus. So just the upper arm bone wow. alone. That compares to Diamantinosaurus, Savannosaurus, and Wintonotitan which are all about 1.1 to 1.2 meters long. So you're talking not quite 50% bigger, but like 30 to 40% bigger than any of the other Australian sauropods that have been described. And all three of those are from Winton, Queensland, which is about a one day drive north of Aramanga and we know that cuz we drove the other way from Winton to Aramanga in one day. Yeah. It was all that was the longest hardest day of driving though because there was the most one lane roads mm-hmm. and there was one segment where the road wasn't a road for like 20 miles and we were dro- <laughs> driving on the shoulder cuz they were reconstructing the road.
1: <laughs> yeah, but it was worth it.
0: Yeah, I think we made it just before sunset. We were nervous. That we weren't going to make it before sunset. And then like kangaroos were going to storm the road and we were going to destroy our car and kill some kangaroos. But fortunately, they just stood on the side of the road staring at us as the sun was setting, which was very eerie. Some
1: of them looked sleepy.
0: Yeah. But some of them looked like they were just like getting ready. They're starting to wake up and getting going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. So (laughs) the femur of Australotitan is about 1.9 meters long or a little bit under six foot three inches, which is basically my exact height. So that's how big the femur is. That's a very large femur. Mm -hmm. It's also much longer than any other Australian sauropod, but we don't have as good of comparisons with those. We have better comparison in the humerus. And even bigger than that, so that's Cooper's femur is 1.9 meters, but the complete referred femur from a different Australotitan is estimated to be 2.15 meters or about seven foot one inches long.
1: So Cooper was the baby.
0: (laughs) Compared to this one, at least. Yeah, so over two meters is a, a rarefied club for femurs in any animal whatsoever. There are only a few sauropods that break that barrier.
1: Since Cooper is so large, I'm guessing it's probably an adult.
0: Yeah, I think that's what they're guessing too. I don't remember them. I'm pretty sure they didn't do any histology, but. We don't have any great bones, uh, I'm thinking about it, because we only have the, the centrum from the vertebrae, so you can't tell if those are fused. They might be able to tell from the hip bones a little bit if things are fused. They certainly didn't say they think it's a juvenile. Mm-hmm. But just for one last bone, just for scale, even Australotitan's ulna is over a meter long. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very big dinosaur.
1: So it didn't have to worry about predators, probably.
0: Probably not. Unless we find some massive Carcharodontosaurid or something. That
1: would be crazy.
0: Yeah. They did plot the humerus and femur measurements a few different ways to see where it fits among other sauropods. And basically, it's somewhere in the Phutolonchosaurus to Dreadnoughtus ballpark, (laughs) which are both... very large. Very large, yeah.
1: The fear-nothing dinosaur because it was so large.
0: Yeah. Although, I think... The authors are skeptical on the weight estimate of dreadnoughtus because that's estimated at 74 tons, mm-hmm. which is a little bit ambitious, I think, as well. Phutolonchosaurus is estimated way less at 24 tons. So they're like, you know, it's somewhere in that range, 24 to 74 tons. Like That's a wide range. Yeah, 3X, somewhere in there. But that's it's huge, right? It's bigger than anything alive today and one of the biggest sauropods for sure.
1: Well, anything terrestrial alive today, right?
0: I think so, I'm not really sure how big a whale humerus is. I think they have pretty reduced limb bones since they have the fins. So it's probably still bigger.
1: I was thinking in terms
0: of weight. Oh, when I said it was one of the heaviest. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's true. And then one last note, the referred Australotitan, so those previous things were about the holotype and Cooper, but that referred one that's even bigger, that 2.15-meter femur, is close to the Argentinosaurus and Patagotitan ballpark which are basically the largest sauropods that we know about. So
1: it's just, it's right up there with all the giants.
0: It is. It's definitely, some places we're saying it's definitely in the top 10. I think you could probably say, especially that referred one, is probably in the top five or maybe even top three mm-hmm. for largest dinosaurs in the world and certainly the largest known in Australia.
1: I think we got hints about that too when we were looking at coopers fossils
0: yeah we're like how big is it this looks bigger than the other sauropods they're like oh yeah (laughs) these are the southern winton formation sauropods were certainly much bigger than the northern ones at least that we found so far and that means that yeah it's probably in the 30 meters very roughly or 100 foot long ballpark plus or minus 30 feet i guess (laughs) because we really have no idea since we don't have many vertebrae One of the really cool details about the paper is how they did the research. They relied really heavily on 3D scanned cyber types. What is that? So I I think I've mentioned cybertypes once or twice before, but it's basically like how you have a holotype, which is the actual bone in a museum somewhere. And for Cooper, that's the whole collection of those bones are the holotype that are all from the one individual. And that's what Australotitan is. It's, it's Cooper, basically. <laughs> that's the holotype. But the cybertypes are the original scans of oh, those bones. Yeah. And it's like you're defining this digital file is the definition of the animal, but in a digital place rather than in a physical bone. Oh, that's
1: cool. That means other people can easily access it.
0: Yeah, so they they talked about how like, I can carry around my seven pound laptop rather than this thousand plus pound bone. (laughs) And you could also email it to people across the world. You can also print out copies of it and print out copies of presumably, hopefully someday, all the cyber types of similar animals Mm -hmm. and really make an in-depth comparison. But they added to that by saying, we should really color code our cyber types. And they proposed a system for it with lots of details that sort of eliminate some of the misleading nature of scanned fossils. Basically, they color-coded where pieces are missing, where places are deformed, Mm. and where the matrix hasn't been fully removed so you don't accidentally see a scanned piece of dirt and think that that's a bump on the bone. It's actually just dirt.
1: Oh, that's good for accuracy.
0: Yeah, and there are a bunch of other things they included too. But I, I think it's an amazing idea. And the picture looks so clear. You can look at it and really see like which parts of the bone on that cyber type are like the real bone that are the where you can make a really good comparison. Mm-hmm. And then the other pieces where it's like, yes, there's information there, but you have to be a lot more cautious when you're making a comparison because it all ends up boiling down into these computer matrices of like, oh, there's a bump here or a bump there. Mm-hmm. And if the bump is there because part of it's eroded away next to it, it's not nearly as useful. So I love that. And I think if it catches on, it'll be especially useful for these sauropod researchers. <laughs> since they the bones the, are so heavy. Yeah, the biggest, heaviest bones. I, I mean, you need like a forklift for these bones, they're ridiculous. And in case you're wondering, they did a little bit of phylogenetic work to see what it looks like it's related to. It seems like its hips are very similar to Diamantinosaurus and Wintonotitan from the Northern Winton Formation. And it also has some similarities in its vertebrae to Savannosaurus, which is also from the Northern Winton Formation. So the authors are proposing that all four of them, Diamantinosaurus, Wintonotitan, Savannosaurus, and Australotitan, all probably shared a common ancestor. And sometimes that group is called Diamantinosauria. We've seen that a little bit in the past. But they point out that analyses sometimes also include South American or Asian sauropods too. So whether or not they actually started with Diamantinosaurus and, you know, their similar Australian relatives, or if it started somewhere else and there was more back and forth between Australia and other places in Gondwana or even Asia, we don't really know yet for sure. Need more fossils? Always. Maybe we'll find out when they describe some more of the Aramanga local sauropods yeah
1: speaking of asian sauropods paleontologists in yunnan province in china found a 70 percent complete sauropod skeleton oh nice yeah but they found it in late may and they think it's a lufungosaurus based on its tail and thigh bones
0: we've got a lot of examples of lufungosaurus mm-hmm. but i think 70 percent is probably still maybe the most complete one that's a that's a yeah, really it's good very one.
1: complete so it was found in lufung Lufungasaurus lived in the Jurassic. They're estimating this one to be 26 feet or eight meters long. And they're hoping to find the skull, which if you already got 70% of it, maybe. Yeah. They found it in an area that has soil erosion. So they're trying to dig it out fast. They'd have these emergency excavations by Dinosaur Fossil Conservation and Research Center. Oh, nice. Yeah.
0: I love that. Yeah, we saw a Lufungasaurus, I think for the first time at a museum in Hong Kong that was on loan from China. And it was, it's really cool. It's one of those like sauropodomorphs where you can really see that it's not quite adapted for the full weight-bearing, massive legs and arms. At that point, they're still sort of like arms. (laughs) They're not like fully just front legs. But yeah, they're still very clearly a sauropod or a sauropodomorph. Be interesting to see where that one ends up on display because I'm sure it will. They might just make a new museum for it. It seems like they do that a lot in China.
1: There's so many museums. (laughs) Yeah. And they have so much to show. <laughs> they do. <laughs> speaking of museums, well, speaking of exhibits, <laughs> which often includes museums, <laughs> in Seattle, Washington, in the U.S., the Habitat Discovery Loop at Woodland Park Zoo has a dinosaur discovery exhibit that's open during the summer. So if you are in the area, you can see 22 life-size animatronic dinosaurs, including a 35-foot-tall brachiosaurus. It's a big one. Oh, yeah, we just keep talking about sauropods. Yeah. What a day. What a day. (laughs) Actually, my last bit is all about sauropods, too. So in Waco, Texas, in the U.S., Mayborn Museum has a new exhibit called The World's Largest Dinosaurs. You can guess where I'm going here. (laughs) It was created by the American Museum of Natural History. It's all about sauropods.
0: I think we saw that.
1: I was wondering about that, and I... If we did, I think this exhibit has been updated. Okay. You can see a Mementosaurus that's 60 feet long, an Argentinosaurus among other sauropods. And I can't remember if we saw a Mementosaurus when we yeah, saw we it. Yeah, we did. And you can also see a sauropod heart to show how large it had to be to keep its blood circulating. The whole thing is to give you an idea of how much sauropods ate, and how their bodies supplied oxygen.
0: Yeah, that sounds really familiar. So I remember them projecting on the side of a sauropod, the circulatory system of a dinosaur and next to it, they had this plexiglass cube that was full of leaves, and they were like, "This is how much sauropods ate." Mm-hmm. That was at AMNH. So I remember probably that, the same yeah, thing.
1: and I remember it was a special exhibit. But that was almost ten years ago now, so I couldn't remember yeah. all the details.
0: <laughs> I think the thing they were projecting on when they were showing the circulatory system might have been Mementosaurus. Okay, because that would be a good one to pick since they have such a crazy long neck, showing like how far the blood has to go up. The yeah, neck yeah. To come back,
1: that I, I remember that. But in the pictures I saw in the Mayborn <laughs> Museum, it just looked a little different to me. Yeah, which makes me think that. I mean, they probably did update it. It's been a while.
0: Yeah. And that would have, I think, been the first place they had it. So they might, a lot of times they do update things when they send them on the road.
1: Mm -hmm. So this exhibit's open through September.
0: It's a good one. I recommend it.
1: This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process.
0: Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now we're going to go on to our interview with Dean Lomax, but... As always, we have an extended version available for our patrons, so if you are one of our Patreon subscribers, then make sure to check out the extended interview in your premium content feed. We are joined this week by Dean Lomax, who is an award-winning paleontologist and currently visiting scientist at the University of Manchester in the UK, and he's written tons of books, including Locked in Time, which looks at animal behavior through 50 extraordinary fossils. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Yeah, it's my pleasure. So, I guess
1: jumping into the locked in time book. I mean, we want to talk about all your you you've done so much other work that's amazing, but the locked in time book. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to start. Can you tell us about the paleo art for the book?
2: Yeah, absolutely, I can. So the the paleo artist for the book is a, a really brilliant guy uh, and world renowned paleo artist called Bob Nichols, and I invited him. To, to do the artwork for Locked in Time. This must be about probably three or four years ago. I've, I've been working on this idea for more than a decade and um, I've known Bob for about a decade and he was super, super enthusiastic about the, the idea and the concept of Locked in Time by looking at behavior from fossils. And he jumped at the chance to work with me on this and he Working with the 50 fossils and my interpretations of them and looking at the scientific research around these 50 fossils, all 50 fossils included in Locked in Time, he's brought to life. And in in black and white, I I might add. And they are spectacular. I mean, I have to say that, right? But they are. They are genuinely (laughs) spectacular. (laughs) They are—they really are. And and, um, the the cover art as well is is in color. But um, he is a a true expert and, 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 as I say, a renowned paleo artist.
1: Yeah, there's so many interesting, well, obviously interesting fossils, but like things that we don't even think about. Like uh, I think one of the last ones was fossilized farts, for example.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that one is, (laughs) that's certainly in there, is one of the favorites for most people who have have read the book at the moment at this point, or at least have seen the content. So like, dude, dude, you included fossil farts. (laughs) I said, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a real thing as well. And, And it's one of the things that, of course... As I talk about in the book, and as I'm sure the two of you know, you know everybody does it. We all do this. Lots of animals fart in the animal kingdom. Not all animals, but lots of animals fart as well, and uh, it's it's a genuine thing that we that I've included in the book about fossilized farts. Probably people listening to this will be thinking, what? Yeah. <laughs> fossilized farts? How do they preserve? You, you, you know, have you got a T. Rex laying rip somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> but 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 no. Uh, th- this is to do with uh, fossilized insects in amber that have been preserved, once they've been trapped by the amber, and the the sort of buildup of gases inside their gut has then released uh, (laughs) gas. They've released the farts preserved, contained inside the amber. (laughs) Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I couldn't think of how it would happen. That's crazy. And there's
1: there's even people who study this. uh, What's it called? Study of flatulence.
2: That that is right, yeah. (laughs) Study of flatulence, flatology. Uh, I I remember uh, looking that up as well, going a few years ago, and I was like, Wow! Imagine saying, you know, this is what you do. This is what your specialism is, flatology, <laughs> right, and I guess pale- paleo on this uh, in, the, in this case.
0: Yeah, that's even crazier. Not a lot of specimens to go by on that field. <laughs> <Ew>. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> There's a quote in there, and um, I kind of I feel like I have to say because my my favorite dinosaurs are sauropods and. Garrett likes the ankylosaurus. We, we like to have a little back and forth, but you have this quote in there. It says, if you want to impress somebody with a dinosaur fact, look no further than the sauropod dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Take
1: that, that's, Garrett. That's, that's one for
2: Team Sabrina there. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it really was. <laughs> Although, uh, but then Garrett will get me for this this next bit because there's the the part about you the Mementosaurus pits, that soft mud where they walked that became kind of death traps for smaller animals. That was fascinating to think about.
2: Yeah, they're they're incredible fossils. And and I remember actually when the when the study was announced, going back over over a decade, I think it was now, and I saw it it was picked up quite widely in the in the news that you have these enormous basically footprints that have been made by a Mementosaurus or or a Mementosaurus like sauropod. Leaving its footprints in this sticky mud, and as it's lifted its feet out of the mud, that they you know they've left behind like column like um, impressions of the feet, and then eventually they filled up with water and mud, and then you've had other animals which have unknowingly walked over this uh, <laughs> this death trap, and then they sunk into this, and then the, the ones that couldn't get out they've been preserved inside these um, these dinosaur footprints, which is such a, a mind blowing fossil, it is. and, and it even it is, and, and it even includes. Which is what's really cool. Not only does it include smaller animals, which includes, say, say, a, there's a little crocodile in there, but there's multiple individuals of small dinosaurs, including a really early ancestor of Tyrannosaurus rex, a thing called Guanlong wukai. Mm-hmm. So, you, so you have that preserved in the in one of these footprints.
1: So, I guess uh, bad for those dinosaurs, but the sauropods did us a favor
2: that's what i'm <laughs> hearing yeah, yeah exactly yeah yeah I, I like to see it it's funny because obviously people don't really necessarily think of say sauropods of, of killers right so <laughs> yeah. in this yeah. case they have unintentionally led to the death of multiple other animals
0: <laughs> they're like pre-paleontologists they're setting us up for future paleontological work
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then there was uh well more on the sauropod theme, the Wyoming Dinosaur Center, and it's something interesting site, that was <laughs> which really was something interesting.
2: Yeah, in terms of the SI, the something interesting site, it, it has a, a deep sort of personal meaning and deep personal connection for me, because when I was 18, this is in 2008, I had finished school, high school, and I didn't have the grades, or the qualifications to uh, to actually go to university. And You know, I also didn't have the money to go to university, so I thought, well, what can I do to really get into paleontology? I looked around, and it, it seemed like the best way for me to gain sort of first-hand experience was to to literally go and dig up dinosaurs in America. You know, that's where everything seemed to be happening. And look, short story here is, is that I ended up raising up enough money by selling, would you believe, my childhood Star Wars collection. Wow. <laughs> of, yeah, of action figures. I know, still a little part of me dies every time I say that. <laughs> and uh, But doing so, I, I went out to to Wyoming. I went to work with the, the amazing Wyoming Dinosaur Center. And this was the first time where I was introduced to this... Uh, to this dig site, to SI, and I walked out onto the dig site and I was blown away by this uh, this incredible dig site full of lots of dinosaur bones, primarily of, uh, of sauropods like Camarasaurus, but probably some some diplodoses there as well, like diplodocus bones. And throughout the site there was lots of um, fossilized mud as well, where it was like a choppy kind of uh, setting where you've got lots of footprints left behind by lots of sauropods, probably, you know, as part of a massive herd, and now that already is really interesting, but the intriguing thing, most intriguing thing about this, is that there is evidence there of effectively it being an Allosaurus kill site, so you have the remains of a, scattered remains of a juvenile Camerasaurus at this site that had been fed upon, dined upon, by multiple allosaurus, ranging from juveniles to adults, and we know that because we have probably working out hundreds and hundreds of teeth of an allosaurus that's been found there, and no no allosaurus bones. So we know that it, they were there, literally feeding on the on the carcass.
0: Wow,
1: that's really cool. I'm sure it's it's still painful. that You sold your collection, but obviously it worked out <laughs> in terms of your paleontology career and. Is the Something Interesting site kind of what sparked the idea for this book? Because he said this book had been years in the making.
2: Yeah, in, in part, it was actually to do with the Something Interesting site. But it was another fossil at the, the Wyoming Dinosaur Centre that really gave me the idea for this. So on my, I can still remember this vividly like it was yesterday. On my very first day at the Wyoming Dinosaur Centre, I was given a tour of the museum displays by a, another volunteer called Geordie. And Jordi was from Spain, and um, we had a you know we had a good connection, both being from Europe, and we were chatting away about what what it's like to be at this museum and his his past experience. He'd been there a few weeks, and he said, you know, Dean, this museum has some world renowned fossils here, you know, some spectacular fossils from all across the world. And whilst he showed me through the collection and through the displays. He showed me one specimen of a gigantic chunk of limestone, which came from Sonnhofen in, in Germany.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, well,
2: came from a town near Solnhofen in Germany, a place called Eichstätt. And he said to me, Dean, just take a moment and look at this surface. Well, as part of this large block, there was the only way I could describe it was, as part of the surface, was like it appeared like trampling, like some sort of trace. And I, I just thought, oh, that's weird. And he said, now follow that. <laughs> And I followed it for 9.7 meters, so over 33 (laughs) feet. And at the end of this trace was a tiny horseshoe crab. And I was blown away. This was an entire death trace made by this tiny horseshoe crab, 12.7 centimeters long, preserved all, you know, right there. You had this entire moment in time captured. And I was just, yeah, utterly blown away. And I thought, Instantly, my, my reaction was, I've never seen a fossil anything like this anywhere in the world, and it just gave me this idea right then that to to think about. Oh, I wonder if there's more fossils where you can learn about behaviours. And funnily enough, with that that particular specimen, I ended up describing a few years later with one of the then muse- museum paleontologists, Chris Racy. So that that really was where the the idea and, and the concept of, of locked in time came from.
1: Wow! Yeah, that's. It's literally locked in time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> that is so cool.
1: Yeah, so I guess just for our listeners and hopefully soon to be readers, you know, what, what's kind of the, the general concept of the book, what they can expect from locked in time.
2: Yeah, th- yeah, thanks Sabrina. Locked in Time is effectively a, a unique book that focuses on prehistoric animal behaviour. And in this case, it's told through 50 of the most extraordinary specimens ever discovered. And this is based on the direct evidence as well contained in the fossils. And there's very little room for sort of um, interpretation with this. And, and so it effectively provides an unprecedented glimpse at the real life behaviours of, of prehistoric animals. You know, I, I guess for the for the two of you as well. When it comes to dinosaurs and prehistoric animals, nothing excites us more than than their behaviour, right? Mm-hmm. Working out how and what they ate, whether they cared for their young, and how they reproduced, and you know and everything more. And you you can watch dinosaur documentary today or see, see uh, dinosaur movies you know, Jurassic Park and so on and it's the behavior that really captures our, our interests right And so with this with this book that was a key thing I wanted to to help others to understand that we do have extraordinary fossils that do provide us with with direct evidence of behavior which I brought together in in five chapters one which looks at sex, another which looks at parental care and communities, one that looks at moving and, and making homes, which is primarily trace fossils and their makers, and uh, fighting, biting, and feeding. And then the last <laughs> one is kind of a catch-all for, <laughs> for all the other oddities. It's called Unusual Happenings. And, you know, I guess my take-home for Locked in Time is that I really hope it will encourage readers to, to look at fossils and prehistoric life in an entirely new perspective, helping to show that these once-living, breathing animals are as, are as real as you and me.
1: Definitely, definitely. And you mentioned the, the chapter on trace fossils, but I think trace fossils come throughout even, you talk about like the dinosaur mating dances or
2: different kinds oh, of yeah. tracks
1: and things like that.
2: Exactly. And and this is it. This is why I find it so fascinating to look at behavior in fossils because you, you can learn so much more. And, and I always like to, to point out with this sort of stuff is that, you know, obviously the three of us would, and every, everybody listening to this would agree that say, a Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton is amazing, right? Absolutely is, and you can learn so much. But mm-hmm. then if you had a T-Rex where it tells you that bit more about its behavior and its life, it just it just makes it feel you know, more alive. It makes it feel real to you. You can see these things then as living, breathing real animals.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And things that, you know, there's the ones that confirm what you already thought, like, okay, yeah, there's bite marks on a Triceratops, and that's interesting. But then you find something like, you know, completely unexpected like almost i would almost put the fighting dinosaurs in that category where it's almost equal sized predator and prey going at it together and you're like why are they fighting that doesn't seem like the (laughs) the ones we (laughs) would pick in the ecosystem to be fighting
2: (laughs) yeah yeah exactly and you know that's that's the one of the coolest specimens as well in, in the book the the famous fighting dinosaurs right that I remember seeing that as a as a child and, and being truly captivated by the story it, it tells of you know Velociraptor fighting with a with a Protoceratops, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. and, and then you know they're, they're then together forever locked in time you know oh, it's yeah. uh, it, it's such a cool fossil.
0: Yeah, that's one of my all time favorites too. It's so amazing. Yeah. For some reason, though, I think it's it's not that well-known in, like, pop culture. I think maybe because they're not that big of dinosaurs. If it was, like, a triceratops and a T-Rex mm. stuck together, everyone would probably know about it.
2: But since they're smaller dinosaurs... I'd say
1: it's, it's well-known among dinosaur people, though. Yes,
0: <laughs> that's
2: true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that, though, Garrett, big big time. It's funny, I, I mean, I I'm remember seeing it in, I think, TV documentaries and books and that. But, yeah, generally speaking, a lot of people, general public, I guess, who like dinosaurs are not never... Never heard about that. Although there is the one recently, the recent discovery of the...
0: The dueling dinosaurs? Yeah, that, that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah,
2: the dueling dinosaurs. And that was one which I, I have mentioned that very briefly in this book. But of course, I, I kind of reserve judgment on that until it's officially published. Because of course, it, it, they may not be actually dueling. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. no, you know, got to reserve judgment for now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to see yeah. what they find. <laughs> but potentially
2: yeah, so.
0: could be like a, a full scale or, or much larger scale, I should say, version of those fighting dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And then there's the whole Nanotyrannus thing with it too.
2: Yeah, yeah, precisely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I imagine it's gonna, gonna generate a lot of research and also, which is great for the, for the science, a lot of publicity too.
1: Do you have plans for a sequel?
2: Yeah, so I, I originally, for this book, it was originally 100 fossils. And in the end, it just turned out it was gonna be too much of a a, a tall task and uh, to try and really to do every single fossil justice. And so the decision was made to to make it 50 fossils, and then depending on you know fingers crossed, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers right now that people ho- hopefully like the book and buy the book to learn about these fossils. That it may lead to a to a second, which would be fantastic because some of the other examples that I'd love to include, you know, what, one for example, thinking about off the top of my head is that there's evidence of um, giant saber-toothed cats, you know, like like Smilodon, of them um, fighting together and using their big canine teeth to literally puncture the top of of the skull of one another and so that's yeah that's such an awesome fossil right and and we had to we had to cut so many cool fossils out of the potential um you know of having the hundreds so yeah there there is plans to have a effectively a a volume two and and we're hoping that that'll that'll happen Cool, your
1: path to to your paleontology career is a pretty interesting one and maybe not typical of what we usually hear. Could you tell maybe some tips for people who might be interested in getting into this field?
2: Yeah, of course, Sabrina. Yeah. So I, I talked briefly about my my kind of journey going out to Wyoming, selling the Star Wars collection and things and, <laughs> and raising enough money to to effectively what I wanted to do was just gain the, the first-hand experience. And that was just really important for me because I didn't have the grades and I didn't have the finances to go to university here in the UK. I decided that I, I just needed to get my you know get my hands dirty, literally get out onto dig sites, be around paleontologists, and just literally just be a sponge and absorb as much as I could. And working with the, the Wyoming Dinosaur Centre, volunteering there in 2008 for almost four months, just it gave me the experience I needed and the information that I needed to be able to say, right, okay, here's my foot on the, the ladder. Now I need to go here and I need to do this. I need to do that. And it allowed me to just continue to to work out what was right for me as an individual, because um, I just felt, you know, university and the way I learn is just quite, it doesn't really suit me. I'm much one of, one of those people who has to kind of get out there and do things. And that's the way I really learn. And so I originally held off university, I never actually did an undergraduate degree. And so I started writing, from from this trip in Wyoming in 2008, I actually began writing my first scientific paper, literally off the back of that, in in September 2008, at the age of 18. Hmm. And and that was after the discovery of an ichthyosaur at my local hometown museum of Doncaster, Doncaster Museum and Art Gallery here in in the UK. And, well, and I began volunteering there when I was 18. Just to, Again, it's all important, and I really must stress how important it is to gain experience. Even if you you were like me, I was working jobs that I really didn't like. I was working as a barman, you know, bar staff, uh, waiting on people. I was doing sort of delivery services and things like that. And so I was putting all the money I was earning, the the bits of money I was earning, I was putting into volunteering at the museum. And just to gain that experience because I saw the bigger picture of what that could lead to down the line. And um, eventually working at Doncaster Museum, volunteering there, to to cut the story on that short was that I, I rediscovered this collection of about 10 12,000 fossils there was no paleontologist at this museum and to kind <laughs> of to kind <laughs> of make the point with this which is amusing it's also scary but it's amusing is that the ichthyosaur they had the museum staff that again to be fair they didn't have a geologist or a paleontologist mm-hmm. but they thought it was a plaster copy of an original oh, and wow. you, he, yeah and it used to be used in the education department Actively used in the education oh. department by children. And so you you, you imagine this 18-year-old kid who's just come back from America and who's like, I like dinosaurs and stuff, and saying to the museum, Oh, you know, this is actually real, and even said it looks like there's a like there's stomach contents potentially preserved in the between the ribs there, which which as it turns out there was. And that actually that specimen formed the basis of my first peer reviewed paper which i'd begun writing almost there and then 2008 and, and that it was eventually published in in 2010 and so by doing that i i started writing lots of papers researching fossils getting as much experience volunteering as possible and, and then really as i say worked my way up the ladder to the point where I surpassed doing a, a bachelor's degree, and and I ended up doing a master's, which over here we have a thing called an MPhil. I don't know if you have it in the in the US. And MPhil, like it's called a a master's of philosophy, but it's in paleontology. And then I went on to do my my PhD, and and so oh, I guess now over the years I've published nearly I think fifty scientific papers, and most of them have been on on ichthyosaurs, and it's been it's been fun. <laughs> awesome.
0: Nice. So that that fossil that you discovered was real after all those years of. Kids handling them and hopefully not damaging it too much. What did it end up being? What was it a really significant find?
2: It really was. It was a specimen that, that really sparked my my career in paleontology, especially academia. And and funnily enough, I, I ended up working with a, a world renowned paleontologist on, on marine reptiles, somebody called Professor Judy Massere, who serendipitously I'd met in in the summer of 2008 and 2009 in Wyoming, who was, on, who was visiting from New York. So it was really all by chance. And I worked with, with Judy, and Judy and I put our heads together, studied the specimen, and actually determined that it was new to science. So this was an entirely new species, which we got to name, and we actually named it after Mary Anning as Ichthyosaurus anningae, which translates to Mary Anning's fish lizard, the only Ichthyosaur <laughs> ever named after Mary Anning.
0: Wow! Yeah, you'd think good someone else would have named an ichthyosaur after Mary Anning over all these years, but <laughs> yeah, right after two centuries. <laughs> yeah, you righted the wrong, so that's good. <laughs> awesome.
1: And then, in addition to doing research and publishing books, you also you're a scientific consultant on shows, and you've appeared, you've co-hosted, and you've also had appearances in documentaries and shows, and done like all kinds of cool scientific communication and outreach. <laughs>
2: Oh, thanks, Sabrina. Yeah, that's become a large part of my of my work is the the science communication side of things. And, you know, it's from working with, say, school groups, school children and talking about paleontology and really getting them excited about fossils and dinosaurs right up to, yeah, co-hosting and presenting TV shows. The main one I did over here in the in the UK was a program in 2015 called Dinosaur Britain that was presented by a a presenter over here called Ellie Harrison, who's really brilliant. She's known for for various different TV shows over here. And I effectively co-hosted the show with her. It was a two-part primetime series that aired here. And it was based around one of my books, Dinosaurs of the British Isles. And so it was one of those things where dinosaurs of the british isles had taken me three and a half years to write i didn't get paid to do the book it was a real labor of love but then it led to doing this amazing thing where it reached genuinely millions of people who could then learn about dinosaurs found here in the british isles and yeah and then that's led to led to more tv programs tv projects and working as a consultant on various things and you know it's really just humbling that other people come to me now and and ask to be part of tv shows and actually talk about science and yeah, it, it, it's uh, it is. It's become such a big part of of my work that, and I guess you know, I should say field work too. I I also lead lots of kind of field expeditions and digs and things too. Wow! Cool. Do you sleep? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I probably need to sleep more. <laughs> that is for sure. <laughs>
1: There's one film I, I know you consulted on recently. It's that short film Sea Dragon. I was wondering oh, if yeah. you could tell us a little bit about that. But it just came out right at the film festival.
2: It did, yeah, yeah. That was a—it's a really, really neat idea as well. And and the the team behind that have done such a great job. They they'd come to me with the the concept. They'd already put it together of effectively telling the story of of Mary Anning, who at the moment is obviously incredibly popular with a lot of stuff, which I'm really happy about. You know, Mary mm-hmm. Anning was my childhood hero, right? Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated by her story as as a, as a kid. And I guess for her, it, she was one of the people I really got into paleontology. But with this idea, they came to me saying, look, you know, we want to do something very different with Mary Anning's story. We, we want to tell the story of, of Mary and Joseph's first major discovery of the of the ichthyosaur, which is what Mary, well, Mary and Joseph made this this amazing discovery in between 1811 and 1812. As it goes, and as what we know from direct evidence of this, of, of writings, is that actually Joseph, her a slightly older brother, he found the skull of... At the time, of course, they didn't know what it was because you know there was no such thing as an ichthyosaur. Nobody <laughs> knew what they were, right? And and they found this giant skull, you know, over a meter long, and um, they had it taken out the ground. And then and then the following year, when Mary was twelve years old, she found the the rest of the the partial skeleton that was preserved. And so the concept of this is kind of how did Mary and Joseph go about finding this? What did they do at the time? And it and it kind of paints Mary, young Mary, in a really cool light that it shows her that she. Even as a child, she knew that these things were important and different enough that she didn't want them to be taken away. And um, she learned her trade, Mary, by going out with her father, who actually was a carpenter, and in his uh, sort of part time, his spare time, he used to take Mary and Joseph out on the beach and and look for fossils. And that's really where Mary's Mary's story sort of came from. And so I think uh, I'm, I'm confident Sea Dragon will do really, really well. And and I'm just thrilled to be have been part of it. And it it does show a different side to. To Mary Anning, that often people are not not quite aware of.
0: I'm seeing a lot of parallels between your career and Mary Anning's career. <laughs> 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 Tweet starting in the field and focusing on plesiosaurs and,
2: ichthyosaurs. or ichthyosaurs, yep. you
0: know, all that stuff. Yeah, on
2: plesiosaurs too. <laughs> I, I probably <laughs> took up a bit on plesiosaurs too, but but no, no I, I appreciate that, Garrett, Garrett. That's very kind of you to say. And and a few people have said that before. And you know, it's it's interesting because you look at Mary Anning's story as well. She she comes from you know a very poor working-class family background, and, and she, you know, obviously at the time, of course, she, w- she was a woman, and so she wasn't allowed to, d- to go to, to school, she wasn't allowed to go and get a, you know, have a career, she wasn't effectively, wasn't allowed to go and do anything, she wasn't, nobody really expected her to achieve much, and so the fact that she become this real powerhouse paleontologist is truly incredible during the time as well, again, a very religious time, and, you know, I guess like you say, yeah, m- maybe there's, there is some, kind of um, parallelisms with my kind of journey into science too and you know I actually from a personal point of view I actually come from quite a poor family background as well very working class and you know, as I say, never had the finances and things to go to university and and kind of overcome many different obstacles and, and you know overcome adversity over the years in my own career from I guess people not nowhere near as bad as Marianne I must admit but from from people saying oh you know Dean you you know you'll never become a paleontologist you know you'll you'll never do this or you know you're not you're not a good enough scientist and things. And, of course, these things are, you know, they're, they're difficult to, to to stomach. You know, it's difficult to swallow sometimes. But, you you know, you stick on at it and you, you continue to follow your passion and you stay dedicated and, and follow your, your enthusiasm. And, yeah, work incredibly hard is what I always say to people when, um, when people ask. You know, I have a lot of people of different ages, younger and older, who say, you know, I love paleontology. I you know, I want to get into paleontology, what do I do? And and I always just say, you know, find what's what's right for you and what works for you. You know, for what works for me or what works for, for another person isn't necessarily what works for, for you too. So it's it's important to, to work out what's right for you as an individual and to create and follow your own path.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's really inspirational.
2: It is. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs>
0: You've also named a dinosaur, which I'm pretty sure we covered on our show. I'd, I'd be surprised if we didn't. Paraavian theropod Hesperornithoides. Could you tell us a little bit about that discovery?
2: Yeah, Hesperornithoides was a, was a really neat discovery. So, just paint the picture of this thing. It's really tiny, it's like the size of a chicken. <laughs> it's a really, really <laughs> small dinosaur. And it was found, which is. Hilarious. It was found at the side of one of the biggest dinosaurs ever an example of supersaurus and it, <laughs> so imagine like enormous <laughs> dinosaur giant sauropods, Sabrina's favorites And then you've got this tiny little Hesperonithoides, a uh, little theropod at the, at the side of it and it was found in Wyoming in 2001 and Strangely enough, I actually saw the skeleton on my first visit in 2008 and, and I mean this is right at the beginning of my career I had no idea how to you know interpret the skeleton of a dinosaur i had no concept of even what a what a scientific paper was right <laughs> so i i i'd seen the skeleton and i was like oh this is really cool and and the team then at the at the museum made of bill wall dave lovelace and scott hartman right back in 2008 they were like yeah this is you know this is a cool dinosaur it's new to science completely and we want to publish it at some point well sadly that didn't happen and it was only until a few years later well many years later that i i think it was 2017 maybe i'd kind of sent out a generic email to everybody saying hey it, you know we should really describe this dinosaur it's it is definitely new to science and, and it had been nicknamed as the the Lori specimen for such a long time and and people in the paleontology community knew about this dinosaur and so we said yep yeah, let's let's do this and so scott hartman he actually led the led the study on this i i, I went out to the university of wisconsin to join up with with Scott, with Dave Lovelace, and with Bill Wall. And, and the specimen was actually brought out to the University of Wisconsin, where we had it scanned. And we spent basically a, a full week looking at the bones and writing the entire paper and comparing it to other animals, comparing it to literature of other described little theropods. And it was a yeah, a real pleasure to describe this little thing. It's a, it's, it's effectively like a mini version of, of like a velociraptor, right? It's, uh, it's that type of animal. And it's so cool to name it. And I should say, that the species name, so it's called the full name is Hesperon authorities measleri. the species name is after the, the Measler family, Howard and Helen Measler in Wyoming, whose property it was It was found upon. And and they were really generous with their time and allowing the, the members of the Wyoming Dinosaur Center and other museums to collect on their property. They donated the specimen and even gave money for the museum and for research purposes too. And and I should say that, also the last thing would be just say again, we actually crowdfunded part of the, the research for this through experiment.com and we managed to get some funding. So there was a lot of, really kind people who gave us money towards the research and we were so thankful for that.
0: Awesome, yeah. yeah Crowdfunding cool. is great.
2: <laughs> it is, especially when it works. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's true, it doesn't always
0: work. <laughs> cool.
1: So for our listeners then, where is the best place to find out more about you and your work, probably online?
2: If you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit my website, which is just simply uk. But I'm, I'm very active on social media. On Instagram and Twitter and, and I guess Facebook as well and, and my accounts are just at Dean Lomax and so if you ever have any fossil questions or you want some of your fossils identified or something like that I'm always happy to <laughs> to, to come back with some questions and you know answers for you for you not a not a problem but I just hope that you, know, you enjoy my uh, my path and my kind of experience in paleontology and that you find it interesting and hopefully perhaps it even inspires your your listeners too
0: yeah Definitely. thank you so much that was really awesome.
2: Oh, yes. Yeah, my my pleasure.
0: Thanks again, Dean. We covered a lot of topics that I did not expect to get into.
1: Yep. (laughs) It was
0: a lot of fun.
1: And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Sauraniops, which was a request from Tyrant King via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. It was a Carcharodontosaur theropod that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Morocco in the Kevkem beds. It looks a lot like Carcharodontosaurus. It's got that elongated skull and sharp teeth, but it had a kind of a dome on its head.
0: Interesting. So it's like sort of like a cross between a Pachycephalosaur and a Carcharodontosaurus?
1: In the Paleo art, it does not look pachycephalosaur like.
0: So, what kind of dome does it have?
1: It's more like a bump on its head. Okay. <laughs> so, small ish.
0: It's important to other sauroneops, but not so obvious to other animals, maybe.
1: Well, it's got this thick vaulted skull roof and then bump on the head. The holotype is MPM 2594. It's a nearly complete left frontal bone, part of the skull, which is just above the eye socket. That's what the description is based on, and it's described as thick and broad. And the fossil was about 7.5 inches or 19 centimeters long. Someone had bought the fossil from a Moroccan fossil dealer and then donated it to the Museo Paleontological di Montevarchi in Italy. The fossil had been collected by locals, so the exact location of where it was found was unknown. Sauroniops was described and named in 2012 by Andrea Cow Marco dalla Vecchia, and Matteo Fabri. When they were first describing this fossil in 2012, the authors said, quote, although the combination of features present is unique and should support the institution of a new species, pending more complete specimens, we feel it would be inappropriate to erect a new taxon, end quote. But then later in that year, they reanalyzed the fossil and found it was unique enough to be named.
0: I like it when people are cautious about naming new dinosaurs. Mm-hmm.
1: They decided to reanalyze it because several papers showed that carcarodontosaurids had distinct frontal bones, and that could be used to tell them apart. Mm. And they said in the 2012 paper, quote, due to the numerous atapomorphies in their skeletons, carcerodontosaurs can be identified even from isolated bones. And they said that the type specimens for Eocarcaria, carcarodontosaurus eguidensis, and veterupristosaurus were unique enough to be named from isolated bones. The type species is Sauroniops pachytholus, and being a carcarodontosaurid, it was carnivorous and bipedal. You might (laughs) notice from the name, Sauron, the genus name means Sauron eye, and it's named after the character Sauron from Lord of the Rings. Nice. That's because the only known fossils from above the eye socket.
0: Oh, that's funny. (laughs) like the sauron tower with the big eyeball
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then the species name means thick dome
0: so they did is a little bit like pachycephalosaurs because they have the same pachy in it
1: that's true i guess when i was looking at different paleo art it just have a vision in my head of how thick the pachycephalosaur dome is and it's a little different
0: yeah it's not nearly as wide it's not like the whole head feature it's like a a smaller i think your bump description was apt
1: yeah Sauron was originally thought to be a derived member of Carcharodontosauridae, but the later 2012 paper, the one that named it, found it to be a basal Carcharodontosaurid and related to Eocarcaria.
0: That is confusing because usually you put the author's name and the year to name a paper, but they talked about it twice in the same year with the same authors.
1: Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So you got to be extra specific. Yeah. Sauroniops lived at the same time and place as Carcharodontosaurus, Compared to other theropods found in the chem beds, the frontal bone was only known in carcharodontosaurus, but it had this small dome that protruded from the middle of the fossil. So this bump on the head could be for display or headbutting, but it's really hard to know for sure based on the one fossil.
0: I guess nowadays that the, when they think that pachycephalosaurus might not have even used their heads for bumping, this one may not have as well. Yeah. Or at least not at a full, you know, charge sort of thing.
1: Yeah, true. The nasofrontal suture of Sauraniops extended along 40% of the frontal length, so the nasal bone was contacting the frontal bone for over 40% of the frontal length. As you can imagine, because it's just the one bone around the eye, it's really hard to estimate the body length for Sauraniops. But based on the length, width, and thickness of the skull bone, the specimen was found to be similar in size to the frontal bone's of really big Carcharodontosaurid specimens with well-preserved skulls. And based on that, they estimated Sauraniops to be 33 to 39 feet or 10 to 12 meters long. The holotype is thought to be an adult based on the size of the frontal being about the same size or larger than the size of frontals in adult Carcharodontosaurus. As you can imagine, because there's only the one bone, There's some debate over the validity of Sauraniops. Yeah. A 2020 study by Nizar Ibrahim and others found Sauraniops to be a junior synonym of Carcharodontosaurus saharicus. They looked at the neotype skull of Carcharodontosaurus saharicus and found the frontal of Sauraniops to be 60% the size of the frontal of Carcharodontosaurus saharicus and said, quote, this size disparity casts in a new light what amount to minor differences between these specimens.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah. Then you get into the whole, was it just a younger version of the same thing with some subtle differences because it's young.
1: So they found that the unique features of Sauraniops were not different enough from Carcharodontosaurus saharicus. Andrea Cow, however, did not agree with the synonymization.
0: That often happens when people finally put their nickel down and say, I think this is a valid new species. It can be hard to unring that bell.
1: Yeah. So maybe there will be future papers about this dinosaur.
0: Hopefully future fossils are found.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Although what if they only find the bone over the other eye?
0: (laughs) That would be funny. (laughs) And before we get into our fun fact, I have a quick correction from last week. I think last week... When I was talking about the Microceratops Microceratus mix up in Jurassic Park, I misspoke and said that they were calling it Microceratus when they should have called it Microceratops. But Microceratops is the one that was previously named for a species of wasp or a genus of wasp. So it changed to Microceratus. So in Jurassic Park, they were incorrectly calling it Microceratops, which was a wasp, and they should have said Microceratus which is a dinosaur. Oops. Yeah, but that didn't change until 2008, as someone pointed out to us. So you can't really judge the book from almost 20 years before that. Mm -hmm. But the 25th anniversary, they could have updated it. So now onto this fun fact, which is becoming more of a fun quiz Sabrina, because that's more fun for me. I see. (laughs) So this time I want you to guess how many dinosaurs end in O-Titan or A-Titan? As in like Patagotitan mm-hmm. or Australotitan.
1: Wintonotitan, Ananotitan.
0: You stumbled onto one of the ones that isn't a titanosaur.
1: Right. Because <laughs> that happens. Let me think. You know, most dinosaurs end with Saurus.
0: Mm-hmm. You like Savannosaurus, even mm-hmm. though it's a titanosaur.
1: This might be a like second most common ending. Oh no, there's there's Raptor.
0: Yeah, it's it's definitely up there. I'll give, you, I'll maybe give not, you that clue. Maybe
1: not second, but yeah, pretty high up. Okay, okay. Ooh, <laughs> I'm trying to remember all the dinosaur of the days I've done, but it's hard to remember 340 something off the top of my head.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> all right, I'm just gonna throw a number out there. 42.
0: Yeah, you're pretty close. The answer is 30. Ooh. Yeah, you're within like 30%.
1: That's not bad.
0: That is not bad at all. Yeah, if it, it felt really common to me too, because I wanted to, when I saw Australotitan, I was like, oh, that's like Patagotitan. Oh, it's also like Titan. Oh, it's also like, oh, it's also like, <laughs> like, kept thinking of more and more. And a lot of them were pretty recent. So I was wondering like, is this a new thing? Is it an old thing? And just how common is it? So I went through and I tried to find every dinosaur I could that ends in O-Titan or A-Titan. There are other ones that end in like Titanis and things like that, but I just wanted to have something clean that has a, the same sort of feel to it. So. Yeah, there are thirty total dinosaurs.
1: What would you have guessed before you looked it up?
0: A lot less. I probably would have guessed a dozen. Mm. I, I would have been a lot farther. Off. I guess a dozen is just what I guess for everything because that's what I guessed last week <laughs> <laughs> before looking it up. But there are three that aren't titanosaur forms, and I'm also being a little bit generous there because usually when people say titanosaur, they mean in titanosauria, mm-hmm. which is a more selective group. But titanosaur forms include more dinosaurs. For example, brachiosaurids are titanosaur forms, but they're not true titanosaurs. So the three that aren't titanosaur forms are anatotitan, like you guessed when you were going through in your head the different.
1: I've got hadrosaurs on the brain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even though we talk so much about sauropods.
0: <laughs> yes. I really like anatotitan as a name because it means giant duck, which is just such a great name for a hadrosaur. Mm-hmm. But that later got synonymized with Edmontosaurus because it, it's it's an Edmontosaurus. Then there's Alorotitan, which translates to giant swan. This is also a Hadrosaur. <laughs> it's pretty enjoyable. And then there's Tyrannotitan, which I translate as Titan Tyrant. And I think that's because it's a Carcharodontosaurid, which presumably is named after its food.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, it must be a big one then to go after Titanosaurus. Yeah, it's
0: like, it's like a full-size Carcharodontosaurid. So like Carcharodontosaurus or... Mm-hmm. Or like Giganotosaurus, you know, it's one of those those big ones. And they found a whole bunch of teeth. I think they said 50 plus teeth around a titanosaur, Ooh. which is, I wonder yeah. if it
1: was a juvenile. That's why it became prey.
0: Because if it was a, an adult, it yeah. wouldn't have been able to be eaten. Yeah, unless know. it was sick. Yeah, or if it was just a really aggressive or maybe more than one Carcharodontosaurid. And some of the adults in Patagonia, too, weren't that big for sauropods. But anyway... Back to Titanosaur forms, because that's that's the more interesting. It's not really as interesting. But the name I think should be reserved for Titanosaur forms probably in the future. I think Anatic Titan gets a pass since it was only named two years after titan And titan is the oldest example I could find. It was named in 1988, which is a lot later than I expected. I would have thought yeah. this, like O Titan, A Titan ending had been more established, but Giraffa Titan. So well done, Gregory S. Paul, for coming up with that. Gondwana Titan was the only other one I could find named in the 1900s. The other 26 were all named this century. That tracks
1: with the pace of dinosaur discovery.
0: I don't know. I mean, it hasn't been 26 out of 27 or 28 of sauropods that were named this century. It should be like two thirds Mm. if the naming is even. But you're right. It does show how much the pace has picked up. But the detail I stumbled onto that blew my mind when I was doing this is that our podcast has been around for most of the titanosaurs on this list. 14 of them are since 2014.
1: See, that's why we keep talking about sauropods. (laughs) Keep finding more.
0: It's just crazy. I can't believe that our podcast has been around for most of the dinosaurs that end in O-Titan or A-Titan.
1: Started the podcast at a good time, I guess.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. The first one that we covered on our show, at least in the news segment, was Patago Titan in episode 142, <laughs> which means that like all of those actually happened in basically the second half of our show to this. It's very frequent that these come up. Mm-hmm. We actually missed one in the very beginning. We missed Loeco Titan in 2016.
1: We were still getting our groove, I guess.
0: We were, yeah. Interestingly... Almost all of the dinosaurs that end in O-Titan or, or A-Titan were named after places until about two years ago when they're all named after like people and all sorts of different things. Mm-hmm. But I think that's probably because all of those places already had blank Titans named after them, which Australotitan is sort of a nice return back to that. <laughs>
1: or Australotitan. Place.
0: Oh, yeah. Although there was already Winton a Titan. So even though there are 17 places with titanosaurs named after them in that format of place titan, Australotitan is only the third one that's named after a country. <laughs> the others are Brasilotitan or Brazilo Titan and Angola Titan, named after Brazil and Angola. But there are some other ones which are named after really large regions, and I drew the boundary line at larger than great britain (laughs) which is like roughly eighty thousand square miles but there's nothing close to that so you could draw the line at a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand and give you the same results and in increasing size winton a titan the winton formation is probably bigger than great britain then there's (laughs) Patagotitan. titan so patagonia europa titan named after europe
1: whole continent oh i guess astral titan is also technically a whole continent
0: that's true then, Siberotitan, Siberia. Siberia is bigger than Europe, which is kind of crazy. There's Gondwana Titan, the entire mm. supercontinent of Gondwana gets mm-hmm. its own Titan. And then, Oceanotitan,
1: the biggest one.
0: It's just named after the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, there are a lot of dinosaurs that end in this Titan, and we've been around for most of them. How cool is that? That is cool. Also, when I was a kid, I don't remember ever seeing these. It was all like Brachiosaurus. Like, there wasn't anything that ended in Titan.
1: It was all Saurus. Yeah. And Raptor.
0: Back in the 90s and the 80s, that was all the rage. It wasn't until later we got all the Titans.
1: Well, you also had Myasauro.
0: That's true. I didn't hear about Giraffa Titan until way later either. I think Brachiosaurus sort of cemented its place as that Mm -hmm. tall, upright one. And then especially with Jurassic Park.
1: Yep. Oh, Ceratops too. That was also big. Oh, true. Yeah. I wonder if you could get to a point where you could tell somebody's age based on the types of dinosaurs they named. If you asked them to name a dinosaur,
0: that's a good point. Or favorite dinosaur? Mm-hmm. There's definitely going to be like a Jurassic Park focus. Like anybody who says Velociraptor mm-hmm. is probably a Jurassic Park era kid. T Rex, though, has been the favorite since like 1918. Yeah, or that something. one's
1: just classic.
0: <laughs> yeah and that's what most people say and that could be from any reason mm-hmm. it could be from going to a museum or jurassic park or a
1: fantasia book. Yeah. yeah
0: but if you said like mysora or any of these newer ones
1: well, mysora is not that new
0: yeah i don't know one of my favorite dinosaurs now though is zuul and mm-hmm. i'm not as young as that discovery by a long shot
1: that's true well maybe you can't get an exact age but you can get an idea it's true and that wraps up this episode of i know dino one last thank you to everyone who participated in our t-shirt design competition and if you want to purchase your own shirts and see the five winners of the competition then go to our store at bit.ly/inodino store. Thanks again and until next time. Good day.